you had to tell the story of why you live where you live, um, what would you what would you tell us? What would you give the, for reasons of why you live where you live? And I can tell you why Katie and I live at 841 North Madison Street in Woodstock because and when we had decided to buy a house, we decided to um, come up with this list of kind of like deal breakers and like highest priority and medium priority things of like this is what we are we, this is what we want to be true of our home. And so then here are kind of the features that we would want the house to have so that we could fulfill that vision that we had for our home. And so first we had deal breakers. We wanted at least three bedrooms. We wanted to have one and a half baths. We were looking for a large dining room and a large living room. And we also wanted it to have good structure and good foundation and a roof in good shape and a dry basement. Those are kind of our, our deal breaker things. And then we had higher priority items that are below that. And we wanted the dining room and living room to be connected or to have like this open concept. We wanted to have well-placed windows that provided good natural light. Uh, we really liked kind of the old house character of like with like molding and arched doorways. And we wanted wood floors, a finished basement, or a basement that could be finished, and a central air uh, house that didn't need a lot of work and had vinyl siding. If you've known us, you would realize, I think you failed on the house that didn't need a lot of work part because we keep doing more and more work on it. Um, but those were kind of our medium, those were our high priority things. Then we had deal breakers. And then we also had medium priority things and low priority things. And so that's one way to explain why Katie and I live where we live. The house had the stuff that we wanted it to have. But it doesn't really give you the whole picture because if you zoom out a bit, um, years past, you know, zoom out in years and kind of a bigger picture, in the spring of 2014, I was taking a church planting class in seminary. And then there was a church planter coming in to share one day named Cabot Ashwell. He's up in Spring Grove, Illinois. And the people teaching the class said, well, we know you're interested in church planting. You should have lunch with this guy. I had lunch with him. And he wanted to have this residency program where he was training other people to plant churches as well. And so we began praying about entering that residency program. And after we had committed to it, he told us, okay, you know, research the towns, all the towns within 30 miles of Spring Grove, and start praying. And so we made a list of all these towns, and then we started counting how many evangelical churches were in them. And then we figured out which towns have the kind of the worst ratio of population to number of uh, evangelical churches. And the three towns that came to the top were Round Lake, Algonquin, and Woodstock. And Round Lake, if you are familiar with that area, it's a, a lot more um, of a Hispanic population, a different, um, I think that's the main part I remember about why we thought, okay, if we were called around Lake, that'd kind of be like a cross-cultural calling. We don't know if we're totally used to working in that type of place. So we're like, we're going to put that on hold. Let's choose between Algonquin and Woodstock. And so then uh, we went there, went to these two places, visited them, prayed, and we felt drawn to Woodstock. And so we moved here. And we believed God was sending us here as messengers of his good news. And so if I was to answer the question, why do you live where you live? Well, on one level, I can tell you, well, that house has had the features we were looking for in a house. And another level, I can say, uh, God sent me here. So it's like, why do I live where I live? Those are two ways to talk about it. And as we begin this uh, four-week series on loving our neighbors, uh, we're thinking about, well, why do we live? Why do we live where we live? And Jesus, when he was asked what the greatest commandment is, he decided, I'm not just going to give you one, I'm going to give you two. He said the first is to love God above all else with all that you have, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you were to just take these two categories, loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself, 
you could take all the other commandments and they would fit under one of those two categories. And if you, even if you look at the Ten Commandments, you would, the Ten Commandments are kind of foundation commandments. And then all the other commandments are explaining how to live out the Ten Commandments. But even if you break down the Ten Commandments, half of it is about loving God. The other half is about loving your neighbor as yourself, loving others as you want to be loved. And so everything revolves and orbits around these two commandments, loving God, loving others. And on one occasion, somebody asked Jesus, well, well, who is my neighbor? We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, but who is my neighbor? And uh, he then tells the famous story of the Good Samaritan. And one famous Bible teacher uh, summed up Jesus' point like this, that your neighbor is anyone whose need you're in a position to meet. That's how the one Bible teacher summed it up. And that's a good summary. Your neighbor is anyone whose need you're in a position to meet. And I, I like that summary. It's good. Your neighbor is anyone whose need you're in a position to meet. But there's this book I handed out, The, the Art of Neighboring, and the authors address the command this way. Okay, what would it look like? What if we took this like really literally? What would it look like to love our actual neighbors? Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself. What would it look like for us to love the people right next door to us, right outside our front door, as we love ourselves? And so that's the question in this series we're going to be asking. What does it look like to love the people living right next door to us? What does it love to look like to love our actual physical neighbors? And there's something about God's commands that would be helpful to be aware of. Every time you read one, it's not just God's to-do list for us to keep us busy or in line, but God's commands are a reflection of who He is and what He does, which means that God already does what He commands us to do. If God's commands are a reflection of who He is and what He does, that means God's commands are something that He already does. They reflect His character. They reflect His nature. And so we can ask the question, does God love His neighbors? as he loves himself. It may, 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 might be kind of a weird way to think about it. It's like, well, God, does God have neighbors? Oh, is he off in heaven and earth is like you know, his neighbors? But just think about, does he, God love his neighbors as he loves himself? Is God a good neighbor? And if we're going to talk about loving our neighbors, we need to start with how God loves his neighbors. And we're going to explore this by looking at one verse that was in John chapter 1, so John 1, 14. In this opening section of the Gospel according to John, he, tell, he says everything was made through the Word, and then we find out later that the Word, he's referring to Jesus, the Son of God. And then in verse 14, he tells us how the Word then came to earth. That God, the Word made everything. Through God's Word, he made everything that exists. And then that Word through which God had made everything, referring to the Son of God, comes to what he had made, the earth, earth and the universe. And in the ESV translation that we use as a church, John 1.14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then in the NIV translation it says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The NLT translation says, So the Word became human and made His home among us. And each one is trying to capture this, this dwell word. What, how do we translate that word? And, and I want to share with you um, what the message version says. Um, and I would call it the message, message version, not the message translation, because Eugene Peterson says it's a paraphrase, not a translation. He was paraphrasing it in modern language, so technically it's not a translation. But John 1.14 says this in the message, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And so the Word, the Son of God, became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and he moved from the neighborhood of heaven to the neighborhood of earth, if you want to think of it that way. The Son of God left his heavenly dwelling and made his dwelling his home among us. He moved out of heaven to move in 
uh, with us or by us. And why does he do this? Well, this verse, John 1.14, is a pivotal point in the story about the Bible. But we, so we need to know, well, how did we get here? Why in the world did the Word become flesh? Why did Jesus take on flesh and blood and come and dwell among us? Why, what was that, why was that necessary? Why was it necessary for him to move into the neighborhood of earth? And so this one verse, we're going to look at its backstory by, look, by tracing the theme of God dwelling with his people through the Old Testament and then it culminating in Jesus saying this. And so if you look back at Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything that exists. Nothing existed except God, and then he created everything that exists. And so you can think about the world as kind of like God's housing development. God is like, I'm going to put up a housing development. The whole universe is the housing development. I'm going to build this, and it's going to be a place for, uh, I'm going to form it. He forms it, what it looks like, and then he fills it, populates it with animals and plants and birds and, and then human beings. And if you look at the language of how God, how this is used, uh, the, it uses words associated with temples in the ancient world. And so what it's saying is God creates this whole world, and this whole world is supposed to be a temple of where he dwelt. Temples are where you go to see God's presence, to meet with the gods. And God makes the whole world as his temple to be present and dwelling in it. He wants to live with us. But the issue comes in Genesis 3, when the first human beings, Adam and Eve, decide, you know what, we don't want a neighborhood run by God. Uh, we kind of want to run this neighborhood association ourselves. We want to be the ones in charge of this. And so they make a decision that shows we want to be the president of this thing, this neighborhood association, not you, God. And so they want to say, you know, what's, what is good and what is bad. We want to be in charge. And they, the issue with this is God says, if you're going to live in my neighborhood association, I'm the one who sets the rules. I'm the one who says what's good and bad. And so he says, if that's your choice, you, I'm moving you out of my presence, out of dwelling with me. And so humanity leaves God's presence, God no longer dwelling with us. Then God chooses a man named Abraham in Genesis 12, and he says, I want to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And what we, if you look back at Genesis 3, what happens is in Genesis 1 and 2, God blesses the world with his presence, with his love, with his um, giving kind of commission to the human beings. And in Genesis 3, blessing gets replaced with curse and because they move out of God's presence. And so God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so you'll be a blessing. He wants to reverse this curse. He wants to bring his presence back to the world. And he says, I'm going to give you a particular land in which I'm going to do this, which is called the land of Canaan, today mostly called the land of Israel. And he says, I'm going to give you this land, and that's where my blessing is going to be. That's where I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to be among you again. And then 400 or something years later, Israel, uh, Abraham's family grows and grows and grows until they become the nation of Israel, but they're enslaved in Egypt. But God comes and says to this guy named Moses, I want you to lead my people out. I want you to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. I'm going to bring them to the land that I promised you know, 400 some years ago. I'm going to bring you up there. And so he says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he's present with them. He's, there's a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night that he uses to lead them. He's present with them. And then if you're looking at the first five books of the Bible, these are all the five books written by Moses, who led the people out of slavery in Egypt. And Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus, the middle one, if you really want to give, what's the question that the book of Leviticus is answering is, how can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? That's what Leviticus is answering. How can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? And so God says, well, here's what it looks like. You need priests. They're going to be kind of the go-betweens between me and you. And you're going to offer sacrifices. 
And those sacrifices are going to cleanse you of your sin. And I'm going to dwell in this kind of tent thing called a tabernacle. And you're going to have to cleanse that. And I'm going to dwell there. And there's only certain people at certain times who can enter into there. And so how is this holy God going to dwell amongst these unholy, sinful people? That's what Leviticus is about. I'm going to cleanse you by sacrifices. That their animals are going to take your place um, so that I can be among you. And so it's kind of like Leviticus. You can think about it as God's local ordinances for God's neighborhood. Or these are the rules of this neighborhood association of how I'm going to dwell with you. And so Israel was supposed to show the rest of the world what it looks like to be in a neighborhood run by God. God dwelling among them. As I said, there was this tabernacle, which was like a tent. That was God's house, his kind of temporary home as they were moving from Egypt up to the promised land. That was how he was stayed mobile. Then eventually a guy named King David comes along. He's like, I'm living in a palace, and yet God is living in a tent that's kind of battered and torn up by this point because it's been hauled around for a lot of years. And he says, so I'm going to build a temple, and I'm going to build this big building. I have a palace. God needs a palace too. And God says, no, it's not going to be you who build it builds it, David, but your son Solomon is going to do it. And David writes up all the plans, hands them down to his son Solomon, and Solomon gets to work. He builds his big temple, and on the day they dedicate it, uh, God's presence and glory so fills it that all the priests kind of have to get out. It's like, he's like, I'm going to show you how present I'm going to be. And so God is dwelling in this temple. But the issue is that the people stop following God's rules, rules from Leviticus, or other rules where and by the way, the command to love your neighbor as yourself comes from the book of Leviticus. Um, the command to love God above all else comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And so the people stop following the rules. They're, kind of, they're still doing the sacrifices. They still have priests doing stuff. Um, but they're really not loving each other. And so God says, I hate all these rituals you're doing. I know I told you to do them, but you're doing them just kind of going through the motions. You're not loving people. You're not taking care of the poor. You're not taking care of each other. And so he's like, I just hate that you're doing this. Like you're continuing to do those things from Leviticus, but you're not loving your neighbors yourself. You're not taking care of one another. And so God warns them and warns them, if you don't get back on track, if you don't start living in my neighborhood association according to rules I've given, this is going to be done. And the people of Israel are kind of like, no, 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 we've got the temple. Nothing's going to happen to us because we've got God's presence. But eventually... We see in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, God he sees a vision of God leaving the temple. And then Jerusalem gets attacked and taken over. The temple gets destroyed. And so the people, some of them get scattered out to other nations. They get scattered out of God's neighborhood he built for them. And some stay here, but the whole, stay there, but the whole thing is just broken. But the prophets kept talking about a day, God is going to come back. God will return to us. He's going to come back. He's going to dwell in this temple. He's going to dwell among us. And everything's going to put, be put right again. And then we come to the Gospel according to John, written by one of Jesus' disciples. And he doesn't start the story. Now let me tell you a story that uh, you know, started when Jesus was 30 years old. He doesn't start the best 30 years when Jesus started his public ministry. He doesn't say, let me start there. He doesn't even say, let me start on the day Jesus was born. He says, let me start before anything else existed. When the word was God, and the word was with God, and then God created all things through the word, and then he jumps down to chapter 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh. And why this word has such a good background, the dwell word, God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word in the Greek is the same word for tabernacle. So it literally says God, uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, which goes back to the Old Testament, God had this tabernacle, this tent, that he would move around in. So where is God's presence now? 
in, it was in Jesus when Jesus came to earth. The Word became flesh and blood and moved in the neighborhood, came made his home among us. And John 1.18 says that in doing this, Jesus was revealing what God is really like. Even more than written words can reveal it's If God had flesh and blood, this is what he would look like. And then John 14.6, Jesus says, I've come uh, to bring you back to God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then, of course, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was resurrected, exalted, and will come again. And he dies on the cross because, uh, because we've messed up the neighborhood so much. It's like we've run it our own way. And now it's like, okay, if you want God to be back in this, somebody needs to pay for everything you've done wrong. And so he pays for our sin. And then at the very end of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a temple. Revelation 21 to 22, there's no temple because God himself will fill the earth with his, with his presence. Not just one place to go to find God, but you can see it, his presence clearly throughout the whole earth. And so that's the story, the backstory leading up to John 1.14. And there's a reason that loving your neighbor is the second greatest commandment and not the first. Because in order to love your neighbor as yourself, you first need to love God above all else. But before you will love God above all else, you first need to be loved by God. Every command God gives, he himself has already done to us and for us. And so when he tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, he has already done that with us. Any way that we might love our neighbors, God has already loved us in that way. And it's in receiving that love from him that we actually love him and then let become a, a channel for that love to go out. So God, we're told in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And God the Father sent Jesus to be human, to dwell among humanity, in order to show us what God is really like and to bring us back to God. God so loved the world. And now as we receive that of God coming back into the world, and now we receive that love, and now we respond with love to him, and that we pour that love out to others. So I have a question. It's kind of a agree or disagree. You can answer it in your head, or you can say it out if you want. Is Jesus still physically present on earth? Because John 1.14 says, the Son of God uh, took on flesh, dwelt among us. Then he was died, resurrected, and exalted to God's right hand. So is Jesus still physically present on earth? What do you think? Agree or disagree? There is a wrong answer, but you're not being tested. If that gives you any comfort. Agree or disagree? Is Jesus still physically present on earth? Disagree. Disagree. Okay. Anybody agree with that statement? Or is Jesus physically present on earth? I would disagree because he's still present through the Spirit. Wait, so you agree. Is Jesus still physically present on earth? You say yes. Yes. Vince says no. Is that what I'm getting? Yeah. Yes, yes. no. I say I agree with you, but... <laughs> Wait, <are> you guys... <laughs> <laughs> he's not your Spirit. Okay, yeah, so through his Spirit. So it's kind of like a both and, right? He's Jesus still has a body which was exalted to heaven. So hum- bodied humanity is in heaven with God. At the same time, the Bible calls us Jesus' body. And why? Because we are filled with his spirit. That Jesus, wherever we are, Jesus is present. And not necessarily, it, there's one verse that says, as an individual, you are the temple of God. Most verses say, as a church, you are the temple of God. And now Jesus is physically present 
on the earth because he's in you. You are the physical presence that he exists in. So Jesus is in heaven, but his spirit is in us. And so we, wherever we are, Jesus is. We're now the temple of God because he has sent his spirit to dwell in us. We're the body of Christ on earth. And Jesus said in John twenty twenty one, As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And so think about what it meant for Jesus to be sent. What is Jesus being sent by the Father? He went to live among broken, sinful, messy, hurting, lonely, sick, selfish people. Jesus entered into our world. He entered into our neighbors, into our us as our uh, as our neighborhood. And now we enter into our neighbor's world. Who did and who did Jesus go to? Who did he spend time with? He came to seek and save the lost. He didn't hang out with the people that were popular and influential. He hung out with the hurting, the misfits, the outcasts, the dirty and the sick, the forgotten, the poor, the homeless, the jobless, the demon-possessed. And so as you think about your neighborhood, do you have anybody in your neighborhood that you describe <clears throat> that way? Do you have any people that are hurting, who feel look lost? God has placed you where you are so he might show and tell what he's like to your neighbors, no matter what they are like. And so why do you live where you where you live? God sent you there to be a light among people living in darkness. And Jesus was sent to live here so that we'd know what God is like. And you are sent to your neighborhood so that they might know what God is like. And Jesus moved into your neighborhood when you moved in. Because if you're a Christian, Jesus is present in you by his spirit. He really is present. And uh, I know that question I ask, is Jesus still physically present on earth? It's kind of a like little radical, but it's like, why in the world would we be called the body of Christ? That Jesus is now physically present in us. And so when, he, when you moved into your neighborhood, Jesus moved into your neighborhood. To use the words of our vision statement, you are sent to show and tell your neighbors what God is like. And God is the best neighbor. And now we just neighbor like him. I don't know if that's a verb, but God neighbored us, and now we neighbor like him. And God, if you look back throughout the Bible, God has always cared about physical places. We might think like, oh, you know, we don't want to, you know, kind of think so physically. It's just whoever comes across my path. But God is, which is true, we should love anyone who comes across their path, but God has always cared about specific physical places. He chose the land of Canaan for his people Israel to be. And the letters in the New Testament were sent to people living in specific places, Galatia, Ephesus, and, and these places where these people live. And Acts 17, 26-27, the Apostle Paul says that God has planned the times and places where people live. And when the Apostle Paul was sent to the city of Corinth to preach the gospel there, uh, he was opposed by some people, but God told him, don't be afraid, continue speaking there. And what's the reason that God gives? God's, these are God's words. He says, For I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, God had specific people in that place that he wanted to save through what Paul was doing. And when Jesus gives the disciples their mission in Acts 1.8, he says, You will be my witnesses, starting where? In Jerusalem, and then all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so he starts where they're at, standing in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses here. And then in Judea, which is you know more kind of Israelite country, but then Samaria is like, those are the people we don't really like. And then to the ends of the earth, so it keeps moving out from where they are. And your Jerusalem is your neighborhood. You could also say your workplace is your neighborhood as well, but it's kind of like, where are you physically? Your Jerusalem is your neighborhood. God has planned 
that you would live there. And he quite possibly has you there because he has specific people that he wants to save through you being there in your neighborhood, through your witness. And so I want you to think about maybe a moment to think about your house, where it is, and then the neighbors kind of all around you. You have neighbors to the side, probably out to the front, and then out to the back. And how many of those neighbors um, do you know? Do you know their, their name? And do you have any, like, details about their life? This is, you know, this is Joe, and Joe works here, and Joe is, you know, whatever it might be. But do you, if you think about kind of that box around your house of those, those houses where people live, like, do you know those neighbors? And if we're going to love our neighbors, our first step is to know them. I want to share with you a story um, about Carol, Carol in our church. And I asked her, I kind of knew some of her story, um, but I emailed her and got some more details to make sure I was getting it right. So this first part, these are her words, um, what she shared with me. She said, Ever since I was a child, I feared death. I did not go to church a lot in Chicago because it was cold or too far away, and I do not drive. I noticed a pattern. Every time I moved, I was closer to a church. When I came to Woodstock, one day I was walking up Kimball Avenue, and I saw the Woodstock Bible Church. I was already talking to God as I walked home. I apologized for not going to church, and I told him, church gets closer and closer, and she chuckled to herself. And then she said, I know you'll probably put a church next door to me. So meanwhile, while this is happening, uh, in, in January of 2015, uh, Katie and I had asked uh, Nick and Emma um, to consider moving with us to help start this church. And a couple, couple months later, they decided, yeah, we were, uh, we're God's calling us here. And so around March, we had we had been praying, praying, praying about what places we were going to go to, and then Woodstock had settled on our hearts as the place God was leading us. And Nick and Emma owned a condo, uh, and they offered to let us um, live with them for a year to save it for a down payment. And so we were wanting to move that summer. So this is like March, and we're wanting to move, you know, June, July, and we're just kind of like. It's going to take God to both sell this condo and get a house to live in. And God did it. And Nick and Emma sold their condo, and we were moved here by June of 2015 into the house that they bought. And Nick and, and we were living with them, saving up a down payment at 808 Roosevelt Street, Woodstock, Illinois. And Laurel, who one of you know, also moved to Woodstock with us, but she was in a, an apartment on her own. We kept saying, you know, there's that sunroom open. We could all live here. And she's like, no, I need a little space. <laughs> Um, but we decided, well, four of us live in this neighborhood. There's five of us trying to start this church. Four of us in the same neighborhood. Let's just start trying to kind of reach this neighborhood. Let's do stuff here. Let's have cookouts and whatnot. And so we decided we were going to do an ice cream social. And we hand-wrote these invitations. We moved in in June. We scheduled this ice cream social for August, wrote these invitations, went door-to-door, gave it to people. And then we hit, it was a big hit. The neighbors really loved it. And the house Nick and Emma bought was right next to Carol and Jerry's house. Carol, who was sharing her story earlier. Their yard butts right up to their driveway. And over time, we built a relationship with Carol and Jerry. And Carol told us that she believed her mom had sent this next door to her uh, because her mom's trying to get her attention and trying to get her back to God and back to church. And Carol asked us, there was a couple times, I remember one time we were walking, she comes running down the driveway. And if you know Carol, she's a, a shorter lady, and so she's trying to run down this driveway to catch up to us. She asked us to pray for something, and there's other things she asked us to pray for. And eventually she told us that when you guys start worship services, I'll be there. And sure enough, we began worship services. So we moved in 2015, and we began worship services in Larry's house um, in February of 2017. 
And we said, we're going to do an Easter series. We invited them to it, and they're there the second service, and they've been around ever since. And so eventually, uh, Carol got involved in the Gospel Fluency Group, which are our little triad groups we had of like same gender. And she was raised Catholic, but due to some practices in the Catholic Church, she fell away. And she thought, at the very least, I'm going to burn in purgatory. And she was afraid of dying, especially when she got breast cancer. But through meeting in, Katie was one of the people in her gospel fluency group, through those meetings, she kept asking questions and questions and questions. And finally, one week over, I don't know how long this was, was it a year, year and a half, eight months? No idea. Could have been a week for all, all we know. But it was more than that. It was an extended period of time where she came every week with these questions. And eventually she just was all excited that, I'm forgiven. I don't have to worry about when I die. She was so afraid of death. And she just brings tears to my eyes. If you think about Carol, she's like one of the most passionate people in our church about telling people who are, are sick and close to dying, you can be forgiven and know you'll be with God. And she's so passionate about that it's because she experienced it herself a couple of years ago. And she said she was baptized as a baby, but decided to be baptized as an adult. We baptized her, I don't know what year that was, but she was baptized with two other, others. And she said she felt a heavy burden lift from her which she didn't expect. And, and she realized she had a fresh start right then and there and was surrendering her life to God. And so why do Carol and Jerry live where they live? If you were to ask Carol and Jerry why they moved to Woodstock, it was to be closer to her friend Monique. That's why they moved onto that street. Her friend Monique is like five houses down. She used to, I don't know if she still does, would walk there every day and they'd play Scrabble or Talk or once a week, I can't remember. But she lived, moved to that street and to this town to be close to her friend, Monique. That's what, if you ask her, that's what she'd tell her. And about the same time period, when they're moving to Woodstock, I don't know if it was overlapping or not, and Carol was chuckling, walking past the Woodstock Bible Church, saying, God, you keep moving churches closer and closer to me. Soon, I guess you're going to move one next door. A couple months later, or however long, a year later, we moved in next door, trying to start a church. And we were praying... Well, God, where God would send us, maybe about that time when she was like, God, you just keep moving the church closer and closer to me. And so why did Carol and Jerry live where they live? Why did Katie, Nick, Emma, and I move in next door? On one level, you can explain it from a human perspective. Oh, this house came up at the right time. Carol and Jerry wanted to go and be next to Monique. But why did any of us live where we lived according to God from his perspective? It's because uh, it's what God told Paul in Corinth. I have many in this city who are my people. Stay there, keep talking about Jesus, because I want to save them through that. And so we could say God had his eyes set on Carol and Jerry. He had them in mind when he moved us to that house, to Woodstock, and to that house next door to them when he sent us to live at 808 Roosevelt Street. It was for a purpose. And so do you believe that where you live is for a purpose? Do you believe that God sent you to that neighborhood, to that house, for a purpose? There's people in your neighborhood like Carol. And God has sent you to your neighborhood so that you might show your neighbors what God is like and tell your neighbors what God is like and invite them to come back to God through Jesus. And we might ask, if Jesus lived in your neighborhood, what sort of neighbor would he be? What would he be doing there? How would he be interacting with people? If Jesus lived in your neighborhood, what sort of neighbor would he be? it's not really hypothetical because Jesus actually does live in your neighborhood, in you, by his spirit. So as a church, I was counting it up. I was making this little Google map plotting where all of us live. 
And after I got it plotted, it wasn't, it, it just didn't quite turn out as visionary as I hoped it would be. But I imagine a map plotted with all our addresses where we are. As a church, we represent uh, 12 addresses at this point and 11 neighborhoods because Brian, I think, is technically in our neighborhood. He's right around the corner. So it's 12 addresses, 11 neighborhoods. And so what if we were all to love our neighbors in the way God has loved us? What if we were all to be a light? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He told his followers, you are the light of the world. So what would it be like for us? It's like, well, the world is so big. What would it be like for us to just be the light of our neighborhood? And that we were the people, not to do everything perfect, but who are gracious and blessing others and making sure our people are okay. And we're the people that bring uh, others together because uh, Jesus has brought us together. And as a church, our Jerusalem, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Our Jerusalem as a church, since this is where most of us are and this is where we have our worship services, our Jerusalem is Woodstock. And so what if we were to love this town as God has loved us and shine as lights here, we'll be the light of Woodstock um, as we pray and seek to be the light in the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for story of Carol and Jerry and how you uh, worked in their life, how you're preparing them to receive your good news. Lord, would you let us receive your love for us, that you have loved us more than we will ever love our neighbors. And that doesn't mean we need to clench, you know, clench our fists and pull ourselves up and try to be good enough to match up to your love. It more brings us to, we just want to receive how much you love us. And you've done it not because we deserve it or could earn it, but just because you do. So Lord, would you let us know your love today and would you help us walk out of here with that love uh, ready to be poured out of us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.